if you're new, uh, the lineage of practice that we offer here at Against the Stream that we practice together is a Theravadan Buddhism or what's sometimes referred to as early Buddhism or Buddhism of the elders. And really it's quite ironic in a sense that early Buddhism is Buddhism minus the ism kind of. It's more of uh, getting back to the root and the fundamental idea or framework that what the Buddha taught was really a practice, was really a pragmatic, almost psychological practice and behavioral ethical practice. In some of the discourses, the Buddha said, I really only concern any of my teachings with one thing, which is suffering and the end of suffering. How in our most often our mind, but also in our speech and our action and how we live in the world. We unintentionally and sometimes intentionally uh, generate, self-generate stress, suffering, anguish. And so the, the layout, the format of practice that the Buddha offered is what we call the Eightfold Path, which is a non-linear, but more of like a circular. Sometimes when you look at Buddhist symbolism, we'll see the wheel, the symbol of the wheel. And the first teaching that the Buddha really offered was turning the wheel of the Dharma, And so this wheel has eight spokes, and these are the practices, or these are really the areas that we're intending to focus our attention into and to really ask ourselves, you know, how how are these areas of our lives and these parts of our own experience practiced on a daily basis, looking at our view, our views, our intentions, our speech, our action, our livelihood, what we do for a living, for money. And then these meditation practices with effort and mindfulness and concentration. Some people say that the Buddha talked about effort, one of the path factors, more so than any other uh, factor on the path, which I find interesting. In Pali Sanskrit, which is the written language that the Buddhist discourses were later written uh, down into in the Pali Canon, the Pali Sanskrit word for effort is virya. And it has a wide range of meanings. It can mean strength or courage, vigor, vitality, perseverance. So tonight I want to talk about effort in three forms. And they're all interconnecting, as a lot of things in the Buddha's Dharma are, as they overlap. A lot of his teachings weren't so much mutually exclusive as mutually inclusive. This idea that oftentimes how we think and how we speak and how we act, they influence one another. So I want to talk about effort, but first, fundamentally, effort in general, you could say, is the part of the human experience that provides the capacity for all other things. So it's the post. I mean, it's really 
the motivational force of how we even really engage. And Buddhism is an engaged practice. Sometimes we can have this sense, and I know my introduction to Buddhist practice was the sense that you know, non-attachment and this whole idea of surrender and letting go sound awfully disengaged to me. And so not detachment, but engaged non-attachment or engaged an attitude and a quality of being curious and interested in how our thoughts and how our speech, how our action affects our well-being. And so in order to even have this curiosity or even to really come out here tonight, we could even start there, is that we all had some sense of some motivational sense of wanting to do that, having to get in the car, right? And it's darker now than it was yesterday. So it's like maybe part of the motivational force was now that it's like, oh, shit, I'm depressed. I don't want to been sitting inside. It's like dark at 4 o'clock. I need to get out of the house, right? And so even conditions can motivate us. So we'll talk about some of this. I want to talk about effort in kind of three categories. I break it down into purpose, practice, and patience. So the idea of effort as urgency, inspiration, and courage. And I call that effort as purpose. And then effort as energy, skill building, and maintenance, which I call that effort as a practice. And then effort is questioning, resilience, and humility, which is where we practice effort in the form of patience. So first, establishing a purpose, the importance of urgency, inspiration, and courage. I think this is an important place to start because in the... Why would anyone really want to practice any spiritual practice? Why would anyone, and I would be really interested if we had all night to go around into if we could really hear authentically everyone's story about why we ended up here. That really interests me, especially because several years ago this room was very empty compared to how it is now. And so what's the purpose or why even practice? Why even have spiritual community? Why even come here to do this work together? And for the Buddha, I think it's very similar for a lot of us in the modern day. He found a sense of urgency, or there's this word samvega, or the spiritual urgency out of the sense of desperation that he felt in really trying to find some ease for his suffering and for stress and for the mental anguish that he experienced in his life and constantly seeking to try to make the conditions of his world satisfying. If he could get enough success or enough wealth or enough um, beautiful men and women around him and a status, and, and, and he found that to be a dead end. That there was some joy, he even says there's a lot of joy to be had in the world. There's a lot of pleasure and there's a lot of even actual joy to be had in these things that we take refuge in so often. He said, but it really only takes us so far. We find ourselves 
I like the phrase rearranging the furniture on the Titanic some of the time. Like, you know, looking for ways to hold on to our status and hold on to the success and to find more and to get more. And once I have the thing, then I'll be happy. And, you know, and this kind of tendency, this endless tendency of the mind to reach out to become something or to get something or to find something that's going to make this feel better. This humanity, this sense of our vulnerability, our natural insecurity the fact that we are very exposed, right? Exposed to the conditions of birth, of aging, of sickness, of death. Exposed to loss. And he really, this is the purpose, is he really wanted to start to turn towards some of these even more existential kind of ideas. But he wasn't interested, he later found out that he wasn't so interested in the ideas, much more in the experience of being alive. So this is another problem we find ourselves in and in our culture and society. I know I do myself is this almost intellectualism. The sense of, I, oh, well, that's a good idea, right? And he, he really encouraged and urged this urgency of it's not so much a good idea as it is something to be practiced. Our vulnerability is something to be embraced. It's to be looked at. Repeatedly, This is where we get the phrase meditation. Meditation is an 18th century Christian term that we, we adopted, of course, later. We kind of threw it back to early Buddhist context. But the word was anupasati, which means to repeatedly look at. And so he really wanted us to repeatedly look at our vulnerabilities. Right? To re- repeatedly look at sometimes even the shadow side or the parts of our experience that a lot of times we're not so willing to be honest about. It's the bias of the mind. And so I enjoy this passage. It's where we get our name against the stream from, this discourse called The Noble Quest. And it's the story, as the story has it, the after the Buddha's awakening, and we'll talk about awakening a little bit, in a little bit, uh, but after the Buddha's awakening, he uh, reflected on all that he had been through and all of his journey to really try to find some sense of more ease, really, and try to find some cooling down of reactivity and a sense of what is contentment actually like? And, and through all of his practices, he started to reflect, you know, now after my awakening, what am I going to do now, right? And so he even had this almost doubt kind of enter his mind and this sense of reflection. And he says this Dhamma, so Dhamma is basically the teaching or the practice that the Buddha offers. This Dhamma that I've reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise. Why should I now reveal what I have reached with difficulty? So he's wondering about whether he should even teach the Dharma or whether he should just live and exist in the world. And so he says, why should I now reveal what I've reached with difficulty? This Dharma is not easily awoken to by those enthralled to desire and hate. 
those dyed by desire, covered by a mass of darkness, will not see what goes against the stream, subtle, deep, hard to see and fine. And then he has this almost sense of humility and this wise understanding that to really embrace our vulnerability as humans that not so many people are going to be interested in that. You know, of turning towards our pain, of turning towards our grief, of turning towards the insecurity of what it means to be alive, to deal with even just on the subtle level of just the ups and downs, of not getting what we want sometimes and then getting what we don't want sometimes, and to really turn towards that and to look at that. And he kind of says, you know, should I even start to, you know, out of service, offer this practice of embracing and turning towards vulnerability. And then he stops and he has this kind of inspiration, this purpose comes forward and he says, there are those with but little dust in their eyes. And he made a decision to travel a long journey a long trek to travel with some of his friends that he was on the spiritual path with these mendicants or these people that had renounced the world and really were also had this intention as the primary purpose of their lives was to find some find some sense of freedom from suffering and so he knew he knew that their intention and their purpose was so strong that they would be willing to listen and he went to them and he offered what we now have is we often refer to as the four truths or the four tasks and the eightfold path I think it's also really helpful to look at the Buddha's humanity in the sense of he was a human and is a human after his awakening. There's no distinction as otherworldly or metaphysical or magical experience around awakening and what that is, but simply a cooling down of the reactivity to life, a sense of more skillfulness and more wisdom and more of a compassionate response to the ebb and flow. We call these the eight worldly winds of life the pleasure and the pain and the gain and the loss and the praise and the blame and the status and the lack of status and that sense of kind of moving between all of these areas that we, these winds that we find ourselves get, getting caught up in a lot of the time that he had a, more of a sense of some equanimity or a balanced relationship to the conditions of life. And so... When he sat down, this humanity overcame him and almost a sense of frustration or urgency that no matter what he was going to do, he was going to dedicate his life to the well-being of himself and other beings. And he sat down, the, the story is that he sat down at the root of a tree and he said, let only my skin and bones remain, let my blood dry up, I will not give up until I have accomplished what can be done by human effort and endeavor. And, and, and this strong 
almost inspirational sense that the Buddha's teaching is for human beings. It's not for any magical, mystical awakening experience or this sense of one day I'm going to meditate myself into being a better person. But practicing this developing of intention, of service, this intention of almost this choice to wake up. Just like we did tonight during the meditation, this choice to return back from all of the places. He says, um, you know, in the same sutta, he says, people delight and revel in their place. So it's so hard to see this ground, this dhamma. He calls this dhamma, or this dharma is teaching the ground. And where's the ground? Well, the ground is just, it's right here. And so where is where are we awakening to? We're, this is all we get. It's almost disappointing sometimes, <laughs> you know, we have to remind, I have to remind myself all the time, it's like I think that, you know, and, and so what do I get? Well, what I get is I get the opportunity to actually be alive instead of scattered in all of the places that my mind often takes me. Am I actually on the walk with my family when I'm on the walk with my family, right? Am I... Uh, you know, holding the company of the people that I'm with when I'm with them? Am I really able to sit? Some French philosopher said that all human suffering stems from the fact that we can't sit in a room by ourselves. So this dhamma that he reached, this ground, it's available. It takes courage. It is against the stream. I know this just in the sense of, you know, I actually sometimes dread the airplane talk of sitting next to someone on the airplane and the what do you do for a living talk. (laughs) Just how against the stream it is to say, you know, in the sense of countercultural to say, oh, well, I run a Buddhist meditation center. You see someone like, kind of roll their eyes and put their earbuds in. Why would you want to do that? I've sat a month-long silent meditation retreat in May uh, with a monastic. You know, in this community that's somewhat, you know, uh, maybe normalized and understood, a lot of folks here have sat retreats and silent retreats and see the benefit and the use of waking up to this ground, waking up to this uh, actuality of being alive. And then there's also this kind of attitude of like, I hear all the time people always tell me, oh, I could never do that. And it almost breaks my, it's like, you know, that's the very one thing that we almost should be able to do is to sit in a room by ourselves. And so I think the Buddha had the same sense of almost this dismay or disenchantment with this this realization that he was constantly trying to escape himself, outrun or outsmart suffering instead of actually turning towards and really becoming intimate and familiar with the ways that the mind suffers. It takes a sense of courage. Maya Angelou says that courage is the most of all the virtues because without courage you cannot practice any other virtue continually 
consistently. You can be anything erratically, kind, true, generous, fair, merciful, just, any of those things occasionally, but to be that thing time after time demands that you have courage. So why do we come here? Do we remember why we come here? Why do we practice? I think that's an important starting point for understanding this idea, this balanced effort, is just even our purpose or a sense of where does that urgency or where does that sense of inspiration and courage come from? And the second way I like to look at effort is in establishing a practice or the importance of energy, skill building, and maintenance. Awakening is not an event. Nirvana, and and even in the sutta, some of the Buddhist discourses that were written down a few hundred years after the Buddha himself, sometimes they even kind of emphasize that nirvana is this sense of something that's only really attainable by those monastics, by people that devote their whole life to this attainment of enlightenment. The word nibbana in Pali Sanskrit, it actually literally translates to mean cooling down. It's a cooking term used to almost this visual sense of taking a boiling pot off of the stove and letting it simmer. And so this practice of awakening is allowing our reactivity to, over time, through gradual and progressive practice, continuous practice, cooling down our reactivity to the change of life, cooling down our reactivity to the difficulty and the challenges of our lives. And instead being able to meet those with more curiosity and more interest, more of a sense of a gentle approach. And in some of our patterns, some of my patterns, my conditioning around certain defenses that I have are very deeply rooted. You ever see that you're turning into one of your parents? Right? We go through adolescence, it's like, it's actually typified in in psychological stage models they talk about adolescence as the point of rebelling against your family identity right and so you actually like are supposed to they call it identity formation you're supposed to try to find your own identity outside of the family and i you know and i even have this kind of sense of like oh i'm not like my parents and i love my parents there's a lot of reasons why i would want to be like my parents but i'm talking about the neuroses and all of the family dynamics and that play out in all of our families you know and i see despite my own efforts i'm turning more and more into my dad and my mom every day <laughs> And just looking at some of these patterns and almost even having a sense of gratitude for some of them. Because whereas when I was an adolescent, I had this idea, this understanding my parents is something that I wanted to have nothing to do with. And now some understanding, some more wisdom through life that actually taught me a lot that was really useful and really helpful. And then there were some patterns that I picked up 
that are still very alive in the mind today and that in order to really start to soften some of these reactive patterns, some of these defensive patterns, some of the ways that I seek validation in the world and through relationships, and really to start to bring those into the awareness isn't always good news. So mindfulness almost can be a pain in the ass a little bit of like really being aware of where we see our reactivity. Being like, oh man, I don't want to do and I keep doing it. Why do I keep doing the thing that I don't want to do? <laughs> and so this is where we really want to practice some uh, bringing some motivation and a sense of building some of these skills and maintaining a daily practice and maintaining this mindfulness practice because over time we can start to cool down. In one of the Buddhist discourses called the ocean, the Buddha speaks to the gradual process of awakening. It says, just as the ocean gradually shelves, slopes, and inclines, and there is no sudden precipice, so also in this dhamma and discipline there is a gradual training, a gradual course, a gradual progression, and there is no sudden penetration to final knowledge. So this is actually very clear to me that nirvana is not a state. It's not a destination. He says there's no sudden penetration to final knowledge. There's nothing that can be known that is out of my reach. That was also part of the Buddha's teaching, is that everything that we need is already inside of us. And, and his encouragement was ehi pasiko, to see to seek inwardly, to see for yourself, right? To, but to really develop this, this energy to do the seeing, to do the reflecting, the honest evaluation of ourselves. And so in order to do this, I think that uh, even uh, in a lot in the teaching on how do we establish wise or appropriate view of the world, the Buddha said there are two things you want to practice to have a skillful and helpful view of the world. He said continuous awareness, so this is mindfulness, really paying attention. Pay attention. Be interested. Uh, and this gentle attention, too. Because we will space out and we will disengage. And it's also helpful to distract sometimes, right? But we want to be able to have the energy to, okay, okay, I distracted, I distracted. That was helpful at the time. And now continuous awareness to kind of come back into being really honest about the ways we get hung up. So continuous awareness, this is the the only list of two that I really know of in the Buddhist teachings. Continuous awareness and then the words of a wise friend is what also helps us develop a skillful view of the world. So in order to really have an energy, some energy or this motivation to practice, we need support. Before the Buddha taught the Eightfold Path, he taught the importance of associating with people that are on the path, on a path. This path, that path, whatever path, but on a path. This is what the Buddha did. He went back to his friends that he had been practicing with. He didn't leave them because he knew he needed, I think he knew he needed some support. 
he was experiencing this doubt about, well, what do I do? And that he started, a, he established a monastic order in a group, in a community, the Sangha, what we are essentially here is he knew that in order to wake up, that we don't wake up alone, we wake up together. And we could go into more depth. I won't tonight, but just to throw it out there in looking at uh, establishing a practice and the importance of energy, skill building, maintenance, this is where we would traditionally talk about something we call the four endeavors or the four efforts. And the way that we look at how we use our attention, being really protective and being really careful about where we place our attention. Just knowing and noticing that wherever we He says, whatever one thinks and ponders upon will become the inclination of the mind. And so whatever we spend our time, really, I I like to think of like chewing on, right, in the mind, that the mind really learns that habit. And we know this in neuroscience, too, that we do structure these neural pathways and we learn the habit of obsession, the habit of intensifying emotion of anxiety with thought, the habit of intensifying emotions of Depression or shame with thought. And so that we bring this effort and this energy actually skillfully into the meditation to try to look at unwholesome states of mind, unwholesome patterns of thinking, and being really protective and being really interested in also what mind states and what type of thinking patterns and habits contribute to our well-being. Reframing constantly, oh, I'm looking at it from this kind of a self-defeating perspective, for example. How could I reframe that in a way that's more actually in line with a wise view? How could I see this? You know, I'm sitting in traffic. Do I know that I'm a part of the traffic? right? Or do I see it from my one view that the traffic's in front of me and I'm trying to get through it? And I don't do that, for sure. <laughs> but how much uh, dis-ease... You know, how much dis-ease comes from that simple sense of just watching the mind and saying, do I really want to hold firmly and chew on this resentment right now? Is that useful? Is that helpful? So this is where we bring this energy or skill building. And then we want to maintain this practice. And we become more familiar through, over time, and I know the folks that have been coming for a while and sitting retreat and stuff, I've heard um, from some of y'all that there's a sense of more familiarity with how we tick. And so we know what's more skillful for ourselves because we've actually watched it. It's like, man, every time my boss tells me to do this extra work, right, I shoot off or I send a passive aggressive email or whatever our tendency may be right and then we look at our projections and we look at our you know all the dynamics that go into that stuff we become more and more and more aware and then we get more curious to how can I do something different that life does have this difficulty and we can't get out of it the Buddha said you can't get out of the difficulty so you have to learn how to skillfully engage with it so we start to become more curious. Okay, how can I communicate my needs? And how to, how's that going to be more effective? 
Then lastly, I like to look at energy or effort, balanced effort in the form of establishing patience, the importance of questioning, resilience, and of humility. I think, in a sense, this is the most important part of my Dharma practice. If anything that I really hope to develop in this lifetime, other than some more of a sense of selflessness and service, is a sense of inner patience. Getting a lot better at forgiving myself, getting a lot better at when I fall off my path to get back on. And I think it's helpful, and the Buddha even taught that there's a helpful sense of a healthy sense of regret when we make mistakes or when we stop doing what we know is good for us. When we fall off the wagon, as we all do. And that there's a healthy sense of regret and that if we can even bring our mindfulness practice into feeling, what is you know the sense of regret? Because that can be an energizing, motivating force to kind of kick us in the butt back over to the path and really being able to realize, oh, that doesn't feel so good when I do that. That doesn't work so well. And I know that and I continue to do it. And then this shame kind of knocks on the door and it's like, hey, regret, can I come like hang out with you? Right. And then shame comes in and then you're fucked because it's like shame's like, dude, and you're totally worthless. Yeah, you should give up. And you're like, yeah, because I keep doing it. And it's like, I know you keep doing it. All those other Buddhists got it down, but you're the one that just keeps, you can't even practice, you can't even meditate every day. You're like, damn, dude. Start shopping around the other temples and the other, just go back to church or, or find something else. So instead, really kind of like using the, the feeling in that experience of having some regret or having that to uh, practice forgiveness. And this is where we can develop resilience and humility. One of the key, there are two things that I like to practice before forgiveness usually is initiated for me in this sense. And one is this sense of questioning myself frequently. This is hard, and I mean, essentially, I feel like I could talk for a long time about this because there is this balance between falling into self-doubt and then practicing self-discernment, you know, and we've kind of teeter-totter between really doubting ourselves and what we're doing and then also the beneficial aspect of just asking ourselves and even utilizing some healthy doubt or discernment to ask myself, you know, how is it for me? really kind of asking myself the question, where would the edge of my comfort zone be here? Do I have the effort to be curious about that? There's a time to back off and to distract a little bit and to enjoy some Netflix and to eat the ice cream and just hang out and coast a little bit. I think that that's a very skillful use of effort. 
right? But practicing this discernment of, okay, how is it? How is it? Where is the edge of my comfort zone? Can I lean into that a little more? And then there's a time to start to bear down into really taking some risk. Because I don't know about you, but every time in my life that any sense of growth has come, it's come through some sort of risk or pain. And then we got to watch out because there's that kind of like junky mentality. Noah was talking about this today of almost like wanting more. And so we kind of live totally ungrounded in risk land, like at the edge of the comfort zone about to jump off. You know, and we need to be careful for that type of mentality too. And so just watching that sense of being able to question how is it. And then we want to practice uh, what I call uprooting the spiritual bypass. So this is like where we have a tendency like to really get in back into the conceptual, this understanding that like I should be, I should know better, I should be practicing better, I just need to be kind or, you know, but there's not really any effort behind it. It's kind of the false idea or the false practice of, stretching myself to the edge of the comfort zone. Kind of saying it, but not really internalizing, practicing internally. And so how do I get to forgiveness? Well, a lot of this comes from really starting to look at when I get off the path or when I find myself off the wagon a little bit or when I'm really struggling to ask some more questions. How is it? And then to be willing to not you know, cover up all of this stuff with this idea, oh, well, I'm kind and I'm a Buddhist and I don't eat meat and I do all of these things and I, and therefore I'm okay. But instead being able to, I talk about this as like expressing our failure. How much growth could I actually really experience if I practice, I'm talking about myself expressing my failure more often. Being like, you know, how often a day do I say, oh, you're right, I'm wrong. Right? Or I thought this thing and now I'm to- I to- realize I'm totally off. Or I'm a little off. Or being able to acknowledge when we make mistakes. So in order to forgive myself for making mistakes, I really need to spend some time acknowledging that. And then forgiveness, I've heard it described as giving up any hope for a better past. Almost this radical acceptance, this understanding that there is, I'm not going to change anything in the past. Situations or circumstances, but what I do have agency over is how I respond right now. So how am I, where's my effort in bringing forth that curiosity of like, yeah, can I can I actively practice? And forgiveness isn't a, like nirvana, isn't a one-time event. I wish it was. Sometimes I think it is. It's like, oh, well, I told them I'm sorry. They should forgive me. Right? But forgiveness, we all know, it comes with a lot more practice. Space and patience and time. Less focus on the result that we get and more focus on being in the practice of forgiving ourselves and others. 